Welcome to the teaching ministry of Bay Ridge Christian Church. This teaching is from the series, Jesus, the King Who Came to Die, a study of the Gospel of Mark. This dynamic, fast-paced book gives the story of Jesus the Messiah, God's Son, the King, who came to suffer and die to save His people. We hope this helps you understand and apply God's Word in your life today. We're going to be looking today at Mark chapter 7, verses 31 to 37, continuing on with what we've been uh, you know, talking about and going through Mark's gospel. And uh, today we're going to be looking at a, an interesting story here in Mark. So you can follow along in your Bibles. It's also up here on the screen and in your booklets. I'll be using the New International Version. And, um, and I will have to make one uh, actually major comment out of, uh, out of the Greek to talk to us and help us see a little bit deeper into God's Word. So Mark chapter 7 beginning at verse 31, hear now the words of your Creator and your Redeemer. Then Jesus left the vicinity of Tyre and went through Sidon, down to the Sea of Galilee and into the region of the Decapolis. There some people brought to him a man who was deaf and could hardly talk, and they begged him to place his hand on the man. After he took him aside, away from the crowd, Jesus put his finger into the man's ears. Then he spit and touched the man's tongue. He looked up to heaven and with a deep sigh said to him, Ephaphtha, which means be opened. At this the man's ears were opened, his tongue was loosened, and he began to speak plainly. Jesus commanded them not to tell anyone but the more he did so, the more they kept talking about it. People were overwhelmed with amazement. He has done everything well, they said. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. Mark, we are, as we're going through, Mark is writing a history of Jesus for us, uh, as it were, and historians always have to decide what to include. So even if you read two great historians writing about the same person or the same event, they're each going to have some unique things because no matter who the historian is or what they're doing, they're telling a story for us to understand. And that's going to determine what they include, what they emphasize, and even how they tell it. And this is true of all histories, and it includes the four Gospels as the same thing. So Mark does this, and if you notice, there, you know, the, the three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, are referred to as the synoptic Gospels. Uh, that comes from a Greek word that means to see together with, because they seem to be telling the same stories a lot. John is doing something very different. He's written later, aware of what they've already written, and he's sharing other stories about Jesus, a lot more teaching uh, than the three main Gospels. But even among Matthew, Mark, and Luke, even though there are similarities, and it appears most scholars think Mark was the first Gospel, and that Matthew and Luke used Mark as a primary source uh, of the Gospel, even though Matthew had been there himself, and they're, they're kind of telling it. But we can see some distinctions between them. And today is one of those distinctions. This story that I just read is only included in Mark's Gospel. It does not occur in Matthew or in Luke. When this uh, section or, or time of Jesus' ministry is discussed, they don't bring up the specific story. And so we have to ask ourselves the question, why did Mark include this story? What was important about this incident that it helps us to understand what was going on in Jesus' life, his ministry, what he was accomplishing for us? Given what we've seen before, remember, we just saw about the Syrophoenician woman and Jesus telling her that parable. As we're going to see, that parable continues to inform the story um, that is going on and that uh, Mark wants us to understand. So let's dive in and take a look at this. Now we begin by noting that Jesus is going to travel to the region of the Decapolis. Now that is, it's a region because the very word Decapolis means 10 cities. That's what the word means. So there are 
10 of these cities that he goes to. And so notice in verse 31, Mark just gives a very generic phrase and says, Jesus left the vicinity of Tyre and he went through Sidon and then down to the Sea of Galilee into the region of the Decapolis. Now that's a very simple sentence. It took me, you know, 10 seconds to read it, but it's about 120 miles that he just talked about. So I'm going to throw a map up here and show you what Jesus is doing. Last week he had been at kind of the bottom of that, that upper part, that's Tyre, and he went up to Sidon, and then he went all the way down, and you can see it's a long way down to the Sea of Galilee, but notice he's over in the area that is known as the Decapolis, which is on the other side. It is outside the normal boundaries of Israel, and by the very fact that it's got a Greek name, Decapolis is two Greek words put together, ten and cities, it gives you a clue this is a predominantly Gentile region. There are Jews that live there, but what Mark is letting us know is, as we saw in Tyre and Sidon, which are part of modern-day Lebanon, Jesus was already in a predominantly Gentile region. Normally, a Jew wouldn't do that, but they would quickly get back into Galilee and try to get down to Judea. But in this case, Jesus is purposely staying in Gentile regions for apparently a period of time, because remember, he didn't catch a train. They had to walk 120 miles. So this is, this is quite the journey that they're doing. And he's doing this because, remember, as Mark's been telling us, things have been building up and getting pretty hot in Galilee. The, the Jewish leaders have been very upset with Jesus. Uh, they, they've been getting increasingly upset with him. There's been increasing conflict. And you remember early in Mark 7, we saw that Jesus had this huge conflict with them over what makes one clean and what makes one unclean. And remember, the Jewish leaders basically said, if you come into contact with Gentiles, you're unclean. And Jesus said, that's, that's foolishness. There's nothing about Gentiles. There's nothing about the food you eat that makes you unclean. It's what comes out of the heart that makes one clean or unclean. And then we have the story of the Syrophoenician woman when Jesus first left, where there was the whole thing about whether Jesus was going to minister to a Gentile. You remember, it's not right to take the, children, uh, the children's bread and give it to the dogs. And the woman, the first one in Mark's gospel, gets the parable. Yes, Lord, that's true. But all I'm asking is for the crumbs that fall off the table. You don't have to go anywhere. You don't have to take anything from anyone. You can deliver my daughter from that demon without even getting up and going anywhere. And Jesus, you know, says for, for this wise reply, you may go, your daughter uh, has been delivered. And so we've seen all that, and Jesus is staying among the Gentiles. Now, what he does during this time, and Mark doesn't really tell us this initially, it's just kind of in a, uh, in a small phrase, Jesus is healing a lot of people in this predominantly Gentile area. Certainly some of them were probably Jews, and some of them are Gentiles. But if you notice in verse 37, and this is a little hard to see because he's just told us regarding the story of one man who was deaf and who had a speech impediment. But we read in verse 37, people were overwhelmed with amazement. He has done everything well, they said. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. What you can't quite see in the English that is clear in the Greek is the word deaf and the word mute are plural. So the man that he's telling us the story of is only one example. There are many people that were healed in this time that Jesus is traveling around. Now, Matthew does not include this story, but he gives a summary of this time of Jesus' ministry, and he tells us that Jesus did a lot more than even that. In Matthew 15, verses 29 to 31, this is the only thing that Matthew tells us of this time. Uh, we, we read, Jesus left there and went along the Sea of Galilee. So notice he's mentioning the sea, just like Mark did. Then he went up on a mountainside and sat down, and great crowds came to him, bringing the lame, the blind, the crippled, the mute. Notice, like we're dealing with today. And many others, and laid them at his feet, and he healed them. And the people were amazed when they saw the mute speaking, the crippled made well, the lame walking, and the blind seeing, and they praised the God of Israel. Now, in Matthew's gospel, it's clear this is the same time. Notice the Sea of Galilee specifically mentions people with speech uh, issues. It also, in Matthew's gospel, the very previous section was the story of the Syrophoenician woman. So Matthew is here giving us an expanded thing, but, but notice what's going on is many people are getting healed. 
Matthew just says there's a lot of them. Mark only kind of alludes to the fact that there are many, but he's going to dig down into one of them. And also notice in Matthew, just like in Mark, it ends up with God being praised. But what's kind of interesting is the phrase, they praise the God of Israel, makes it sound like it's Gentiles that are offering up this praise. Matthew doesn't say that, but it's specifically it's the God of Israel that they are praising. Very similar as we're going to see to what happens in Mark. So what's going on here is Jesus is in Gentile territory, but he's continuing to minister to people. He's healing incurable diseases, and the overflow of this is people are having their eyes open to who the true God is, and they are offering praise to God. In light of what we've already seen in Mark's gospel, what this means is the crumbs are falling from the master's table. And the Gentiles, who many of the Jews said were dogs, who they said were unclean, they're receiving care from the master. That's what's going on here. Let that parable guide our thinking. So let's deal in, uh, dig into why Mark is specifically giving us this one story of this one man. So it's an example of all of these great healings. And again, it's only found in Mark. Notice in verse 32, he tells us, some people brought to him a man who was deaf and could hardly talk, and they begged him to place his hand on the man. Now, if we've been following Mark's gospel, because there's another interesting thing kind of going on without getting too technical, we're approaching the high point in the gospel where Peter is going to give his confession of who Jesus is. And Mark is almost kind of bookending the story. So there's a lot of allusions here that go back to the very early chapters in Mark's gospel. You remember with the Syrophoenician woman, Jesus had gone away. He was trying to be away from the crowds and he got interrupted. Just like in Matthew chapter 1, Jesus had healed somebody that, people that were demon possessed and he tried to get away and Peter and the others came and interrupted. Kind of like a bookend. Well here, very similarly, we see somebody bringing an individual to Jesus to be healed. You remember in Mark chapter 2, the people came and they had to dig through the roof to lower the paralytic down to Jesus. It's a very similar kind of story. And we don't know here what these folks, are they Jews or Gentiles? We're not told. We know they're in a predominantly Gentile region. We don't even know if they're specifically seeking healing. Mark doesn't even say they asked Jesus to heal him. They said, put his hands on him, which is used for healing, but it's also used for blessing. So they may not even have the faith at this point to believe Jesus can actually heal. We simply don't know. We can only kind of surmise. But what we are told is the man is deaf and he has a speech impediment. Now what's interesting is the word that Mark uses here is not that he was literally mute, that he could not speak at all. The, the, the words and phrases that he uses are that he speaks, but very, very poorly. Most scholars are inferring from this the man was not born deaf. He became deaf at some point, and in the same time, he might have had a, an accident or a stroke or something, he, he lost the ability to speak well. We're going to see Mark uses a very interesting phrase for what that is. But here's a man who can no longer hear, and he communicates very poorly so that probably very few people could even understand what he was doing. His speech is very difficult to understand. So he's brought to Jesus, and Jesus is going to heal him, but he does some very unusual things. In verses 33 to 35, we see Jesus does several different things as part of the process of healing the man. Number one, he takes him away from the crowd. Now this is certainly in part because as we've seen at this point in the gospel, what does Jesus tell people virtually every time he heals them? Don't tell anybody. Okay, we're going to see he does the same thing here. Completely contrary to what we might expect, Jesus is not calling for a spotlight. He's not trying to publicize what he's doing. He's actually trying to keep it quiet. He's trying to keep it on the down low, so to speak. So he tells the guy, come here away from the crowd, and this way we can, we can try to keep this private. Because, of course, the problem is, is every time the crowds start coming in, number one, they're more interested in healing than teaching, but Jesus is more interested in teaching than he is in healing. 
And number two, the crowds get to be so great. You remember there's times he, it looked like he was going to get crushed. He has to get in the boat and get out on the water. He has to keep leaving towns and staying out in lonely regions in the wilderness. Uh, so he's trying to control that. Now, he's doing that certainly for that reason with the guy, but it's also kind of apparent out of all of the crowds, Jesus wants to take this one man and individually minister to this one man. And don't miss the fact, Jesus, yes, he has the church, all of us, and that's critical. But Jesus also relates individually to every one of us in this room. It's not just a matter of when you and I have a need, it's not just a matter of the crowd. Jesus wants to take each of us aside, and he wants to minister individually to us. And notice how that continues in these actions of Jesus. Jesus sticks his fingers in the ears. He's touching the man's tongue. This is not saying, hey, if you want to understand how to be used by God and seeing somebody healed, follow these exact actions. Nowhere else does Jesus do this. He also doesn't spit on other people, which he's, is going to be engaged here. You've got to realize what's going on is this man can't hear. How are you going to communicate to the guy, I'm not just blessing you, I'm going to heal you? I know what your problems are. You can't hear, so I'm going to put my fingers in your ears. I know you can't speak, so I'm going to touch your tongue. I'm letting you know I've brought you here because I intend to heal you. That's what the Lord is doing for this guy. And the spit is probably done for two reasons. It's kind of an interesting thing. Number one, spit was thought to be used in healing. A lot of guys who traveled around and proclaimed that they could heal, very often spit was thought to have healing properties. That sounds a little unusual, doesn't it? How many of you are glad when you go to a doctor today, they don't spit on you to heal you, right? My wife is out in the lobby thinking how gross this is right now. But the weird thing was, while spit was thought to somehow have these almost miraculous powers to heal, the flip side was the Jews said, but it's unclean. If you are spit on by someone, you are immediately unclean. So remember, Jesus has had this whole argument about cleanness and uncleanness and what the Jews thought made you clean or unclean. Jesus is doing something unclean in their eyes, and through it, God is actually going to heal this man. So this, this is not unlike, remember, back in Mark chapter 2 when they bring the guy in and, and Jesus is healing people, he's doing it on the Sabbath. And remember at one point they actually said, there are six other days a week. Jesus is going out of his way to say all of these rules, all of these traditions of the elders, not only are they not helping you get closer to God, they're actually getting in the way. He's knocking down all of these things consistently. And so he's doing this. He's still teaching these ideas of ceremonial cleanness and uncleanness are wrong. If this is a Gentile, I'm about to touch a person you deem unclean. I'm about to do something you deem unclean, but I'm showing you God doesn't pay attention to such things. This man is going to speak again, and he is going to hear again. And so Jesus is carefully communicating all of this to the man. And then notice another, this is just a little sideline, but we get these amazing things, and I love that Mark will insert them in. Jesus looks to heaven, he sighs deeply, and he prays in Aramaic. Now, it's very similar, you know, when Jesus, and we've seen it, and the next story is going to be Jesus multiplying food again, and every time Jesus takes food, what does he do? He, he looks to heaven because it's a sign that he's looking to the Father. And so he does the same thing here. But interestingly, Mark tells us that he gives us the exact word that Jesus used. And he's done this once before. You remember the young girl that um, had, had died, and he, Talitha Kume, you know, I say to you, little girl, arise. He speaks in Aramaic. This is probably because these particular things stuck in Peter's mind. And so as Peter is sharing all of this with Mark, for Mark to write down the gospel, when he comes to this, he'd, normally he might just say, Jesus touched the man and he healed him. But it is burned in Peter's mind that 
he spoke this Aramaic word. Now, that is the language that Jesus grew up speaking. It's the language that Peter grew up speaking. But there's not magic in the particular language. Peter is remembering this and being reminded of this, and he's saying, man, if you could have been there and you could have seen this. He, he uttered this word, and the man who could not hear, his ears were opened. And and Mark is letting us know what's interesting because there's another thing that's going on. He could have just said the Greek word for be opened. But he doesn't. He gives the Aramaic and then he translates it. Because the majority of people who are reading Mark's gospel that it's written for, they're Gentiles like you and me. And it's another reminder that Jesus loves and cares for the Gentiles. The ones that, that the Pharisees said were unclean, they may have rejected you, but God has not rejected you. So I want you to understand God is, is translating it for you. He's speaking his word to you so you can understand. And notice, he, he just so quickly says, at this the man's ears were opened, his tongue was loosened, and he began to speak plainly. This man who could not hear now can hear. And, and the phrase, actually, it's really interesting in the Greek where it says his tongue was loosened. It's literally the chains of his tongues were loosed, and he began to speak. Okay? So th there's literally a picture that the man's tongue was tied down with chains, and he's saying, and Jesus spoke, and it shattered the chains. It broke the chains, and the man who could not speak clearly now can speak clearly. This man is healed, and he is restored. Crumbs are falling from the master's table, and even the crumbs are enough to feed and to heal. And so, so notice what happens here. Once again, we get the aftermath. And the aftermath is really important because now Mark is, as it were, he's landing the plane. This is why he's telling us this specific story. Matthew just says a whole bunch of people got healed. And apparently all kinds of other amazing sicknesses and illnesses. Mark, following the way Jesus does parables, he's leaving this where we've got to meditate a little bit more to think and to understand what is happening. So notice what Jesus does. Immediately in verse 36, he commands them not to tell anyone. Now, here's an amazing thing. He whose word can open the ears of the deaf cannot convince these people to do what he's telling them to do. I mean, once again, Jesus says, shh, and what do they do? They run out telling everyone. Now, once again, this is not an example for you and I because we are not commanded to not tell what Jesus has done. What are we commanded to do? But oddly enough, what do we oftentimes end up doing? It's a rather curious thing, don't you think? That when Jesus tells people to be quiet, they talk. And when he tells them to talk, they get quiet. Just part of our obstinacy, I think. But, but notice, the, the guy can't help it. And, and you've got to feel for the guy. I mean, if you couldn't hear, and when you spoke, nobody could understand you, and all of a sudden, you can hear, and you can talk, and you can speak, and, and you can begin to communicate. How hard would it be to be quiet? I, I mean, it would be really difficult. And this guy, because what's the obvious question you think people are going to ask? Uh, yesterday, we were making signs at you and trying to communicate, and this was really difficult, and now all of a sudden, we're carrying on a conversation. Uh, that's not a typical thing. What happened? Right? I mean, you, you, you would want to tell anyone what was going on, and that's exactly what goes on. But what's interesting here in the Decapolis, because we've seen when there have been healings before in the aftermath is the Pharisees and everybody get really, really upset. But here, and, and even if you remember, because we've been in the Decapolis one other time in the gospel. Anybody remember when? The, the demoniac that lived in the tombs 
and had the legion of demons and Jesus healed him and what was the response of the people in the Decapolis to that healing yeah you need to go somewhere else remember long way away now you remember the guy wanted to go away and Jesus told him hey listen you stay here and you tell everybody what's been done so now Jesus is back in the same region he does a healing but notice this time the response is not go away the ground has been tilled the seed has been sown and this time the people are ready to receive the same people that had told him go away are now ready to receive and so we read in verse 37 people are overwhelmed with amazement he has done everything well how far is this from mark 5 when they said you got to get in the boat and you got to get out of here they, they didn't want him before now not only do they want him they are amazed and it is not just that you know wow this is an amazing thing that we just did it is he does everything well i mean when i survey what this guy does the only thing i can say is it is all very good all of it now what's interesting is this is actually a gen an echo of genesis 131 you remember when god creates and he creates everything and god as it were sits back at the end of creation week and he looks out and every day he said it's good it's good it's good what does he say the seventh and final time it is very good because when god creates it is not just good it is very good when god creates the only response can be to sit back and say he does all things well everything in his creation is astounding and amazing so god's work in creation is very good but see what we're learning here in mark's gospel is because of our sin we messed everything up and everything is a, is a mess and everything is broken but notice just as when the father creates everything is done well so when the son restores everything is done well this is this is another way mark wants us to dig around he wants us to think it's it's like a parable but what he's saying is do you understand what god created and we messed up jesus is restoring and he is not restoring it just a little bit it is very good he is fixing everything it will get back to what god intended it's another way of saying we're not off on another plan plan a is still on track god is going to accomplish it what he intended in creation jesus is going to accomplish in redemption no matter how broken it may seem to be right now god is a god of redemption and restoration this needs to encourage because if you are open and honest we look around and it is broken and you and i are constantly breaking things is it not true i mean you remember the old comic strip you know we have found the enemy and he is us who the person who brings the most pain and difficulty in my life is me right and who brings the most pain and difficulty in your life unless your name is linda which then it would still be me <laughs> right it's the bad news god makes it and says it's very good and what do we do we break it but the good news is god is a god of redemption and restoration or we would have no hope but mark even goes on and says this that not only is this healing a foretaste of jesus's work in restoring all things to their original purpose and state there's another little hidden gem here in mark's gospel that he wants us to meditate on in mark 7 32 when he introduces this man he says they brought him a man who was deaf and he could hardly talk this is not the usual greek word for uh for being mute uh it, it is a greek word again the niv's translated hardly talk it only appears two times in the entire bible once here in mark chapter 7 and once in isaiah 35 verse 6 
Isaiah 35, 6, the NIV translates it this way. Then the lame will leap like a deer. Remember, Matthew recorded that he was healing even the lame. And the mute tongue will shout for joy. Same exact word as in Mark chapter uh, 7, verse 32. Water will gush forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. See, Isaiah 35 is a hymn of praise for God redeeming and restoring. Isaiah has prophesied that Israel is going to go off into exile, but there is a hymn of praise that do not fear. Though you go into exile, God will restore you. And in fact, when God restores, it's going to be like the desert blooming like it is a paradise. And the lame are going to walk. The blind are going to see. Those who are deaf are going to hear. Those whose tongues are chained down are going to be freed, and they are going to offer praise to our God. And Mark is giving us a little crumb that says this is exactly what Jesus is doing. Only two places in the entire Bible that this word occurs. That's it, right here and there. But here's the amazing thing. Isaiah 35 not only predicts these miraculous healings that were going to be done, but it talks about a way, the way that was going to be for Israel to come home. And it's referred to as the way of holiness. Here's Isaiah 35, 8 to 10. And a highway will be there. It will be called the way of holiness. The unclean will not journey on it. It will be for those who walk in that way. Wicked fools will not go about on it, but only the redeemed will walk there, and the ransomed of the Lord will return. They will enter Zion with singing. Everlasting joy will crown their heads. Gladness and joy will overtake them, and sorrow and sighing will flee away. Some of you who may have been saved for a long, long time, may remember we used to sing a song right out of this passage right here. Uh, you know, Sorrow and Silent Fear. I remember when I was a mid, we sang this, and I love that song. But notice the amazing thing. God is going to restore his people, and there will be a highway, and it will be a highway of holiness, and the unclean. Who do the Pharisees say are unclean? All these people. That whole Decapolis area, that place is unclean. Even the Jews living there, you know, those people, they tend pigs over there. They're all unclean. This whole place is unclean. They can't be part of what God is doing. But see, Mark has referred us back to Isaiah 35 and says, oh no, Jesus is building a highway of holiness, and you know who's on it? The Gentiles are on that highway of holiness because it is not about Jew or Gentile, male or female, slave or free. It's not about all of those external things. It is about those who hear and respond to the call of God. And those who do are redeemed. They are restored. And they can't do anything but offer praise to God to say, He does all things well. He made me and I botched it and I broke it, and he redeemed, and he restored. And even after he did that, you know what? I botched it again. But he redeemed, and he restored, because that's the kind of God he is. So this is what Mark is wanting us to see. The song of redemption and restoration is being fulfilled, and it's happening in a Gentile land. Out in the wilderness, it is sprouting forth and it's starting to look like a garden because he does all things well. The parable is being fulfilled. Crumbs are falling off the master's table, but it's starting to not just be crumbs. It's like loaves of bread falling off the master's table because he does all things well. So what does this mean for you and me? How do we, how do we respond? And let me say, even before I go to applying the word real quickly, actually, this is also proof you remember as we tie together with Mark's gospel. Remember last week we, we saw in Isaiah 49, 6, God had prophesied and spoke through the prophet Isaiah that, look, when my servant comes, the Messiah comes. It's too small a thing just to restore the tribes of, of Israel. No, you're going to be a light to the nations. You're going to bring the Gentiles in. What are we watching happen right now? See, Mark is saying, see, that's true. 
It, we saw it with the Syrophoenician woman in the most unexpected of places. The first one who gets a parable in the entire gospel. Not a rabbi, not a scribe, not one of Jesus' disciples, a Gentile woman. First that gets it. And, and as Mark brings us to this point and says, do you see what the, the Messiah is doing? It is in a Gentile land that he is accomplishing this. Jesus may be rejected by the Pharisees, but he does all things well and is fulfilling all the promises of God. Whatever was going on on the other side of the lake, he does all things well. Now, how do we apply this? It's a simple question for us as we prepare to come to the Lord's table. Do I really understand he does all things well? Now, I'm not asking for an intellectual response because I get that if, if we're believers, we well, yeah. But let's let it sink in that this world is broken. And in the midst of the brokenness, it's hard sometimes to say, Jesus does all things well. So I, I want everybody to stop being religious and let's be honest. As I was preparing this the other day, I was listening to a Bob Dylan record because there's always good stuff when you listen to a Bob Dylan record. And what my wife really loves is it usually makes me imitate and sing like Bob Dylan, which greet Linda about that afterwards because she loves when I sing like Bob Dylan. But Bob Dylan on an album called Oh Mercy had a song called everything is broken. And I won't read the whole song, but it includes these lines. Broken bottles, broken plates, broken switches, broken gates, broken dishes, broken parts. Streets are filled with broken hearts. Broken words never meant to be spoken. Everything is broken. Broken hands on broken plows, broken treaties, broken vows. Broken pipes, broken tools, people bending broken rules. Hound dog howling, bullfrog croaking, everything is broken. See, that's a meditation on Romans 8 where Paul tells us what's creation doing? It's groaning. E even after Christ has come and has begun all this, it is groaning under the weight of our sin. And we need to be aware of that and understand that because as we walk through this life, even as the people of God, do we experience the brokenness of this world? Okay, again, don't get religious. We do. And there are all kinds of people out there that will peddle things and tell you, if you follow my little way, my little formula, you do it exactly right, you, you'll live a life where you don't experience brokenness anymore. That is simply not true. This world, everything is broken. But he who did all things well in creation is doing all things well in redeeming and restoration. Jesus is still working to redeem and restore all things. He has not abandoned creation. He has not abandoned us. We so often, when the, when the pot is marred in the potter's hand, what would we do with it? Just get rid of it. But, but Jesus is much more, if any of you have seen, I think it's called kintsugi or something. There's a Japanese form of pottery where it's broken and they fill it in with gold. And, and for being restored from the brokenness, it becomes all the more beautiful. It becomes all the more glorious. And in fact, it's all the very broken places that are the most beautiful places on the pot because he does all things well. And so it's imperative for us to understand this, that there, there's a worship song that we've just been learning called I Am Not My Own, which is just an amazing song, but I, I, I want us to hear one stanza of that song. I am not my own and now my heart is free. O maker, come and make what you will of me. There is nothing broken that you cannot repair. So Lord, I leave my life in your loving care. Brothers and sisters, as you're sitting here this morning, every one of us has got brokenness. It includes physical brokenness, emotional, spiritual, relational brokenness. 
All of us experience that. But I want to encourage you, Jesus has begun the work of redemption and restoration. And there is nothing broken that he cannot repair. There is nothing broken he will not repair. The struggle for us is we live in what's known as the now, but the not yet. Jesus has already begun restoring. He healed that man's hearing. He loosed his tongue. But there's still brokenness. He's, he has already redeemed us and restored us to the Father so that we are now children of God, covered with the righteousness of Christ. We're invited to his table, but we're still broken. We still have not experienced the fullness of it. He has begun this restoration now, but it's not going to be completed until the final day. That's why in Romans 8, where I said Dylan was kind of alluding, if you go in there, Paul says, look, creation's groaning, but Jesus has already begun it, but it's awaiting the, the finality of our adoption, the, the redemption of our bodies. There's going to come the day where Jesus is going to snatch your body and mine out of the dust, and on that day, everything is restored. But until then, we struggle because oftentimes we experience brokenness. We have broken areas in our lives. But what's the call for us? The call is not to deny or ignore the brokenness. The call is to say, you know what? He does all things well. And I know he has not abandoned me. I know he's going to walk with me. I know he's going to keep me until that day. That is what uh, he is calling for us to do. So we cling to him in faith. Again, you know, I love the Psalms. We talk about the Psalms a lot. I encourage you to pray Psalms. But when you pray the Psalms, they're full of broken people trusting God in the midst of the brokenness. They're, they're not this, hey, every day with Jesus is better than the day before. Some days are better than the day before. Some days are full of difficulty. But here's what I know. Even if I feel forsaken, he will never forsake me. Even if I feel like I'm being overwhelmed, he will hold on to me. Even if I feel faithless, he will remain faithful, as Paul puts it in 2 Timothy. So I want to encourage as we get ready to come to the table that there, there's something here for each of us where you say, this is an area where I'm experiencing brokenness. It may be in my body, maybe in my soul, maybe emotionally, it may be relationally. What God is calling us to do as we come to the table is say, will you trust me? Will you trust me to walk with you through this? Will you trust, no matter what you see today or tomorrow, will you trust me that I am a faithful shepherd and I do all things well. Because what you need and what I need is to hear from him personally. Now, what we're going to do is we're going to come to the table. And here at this table, we um, visualize Jesus' work of creation. Notice it's just bread and, and the fruit of the vine. It's, it's nothing different than that. It's what God has given us in creation, but also redemption and restoration. And here each week we confess our sins, but we rehearse the gospel. Because as a broken man, it is good for me to know that he's a God of redemption and restoration. I can never be reminded of that too often. And so we're going to be doing this and we're going to personally receive from our shepherd. And we're going to do something a little different this morning. I'm going to go through you know, the words of institution as we always do, but as they're passing out the elements, take time, you know, pay attention to grab them, but we're going to be singing a song called um, All the Way My Savior Leads Me, which has the line, he does all things well. That's why I came to mind. But if you know the story of that song, does anybody know who wrote that hymn? Fanny Crosby, who was blind. She wrote many hymns that you love, tons of them, but you're going to see in here that she's basically saying, look, this life is full of things I don't understand. 
This life is full of difficulties and problems, but you know what I know? All the way my Savior leads me. And he is going to lead me until the day that it's not here, but it's at his table that Jesus is going to feed you and he's going to feed me. And in the meantime, we trust. In the meantime, we hear and we receive his word of promise. So if you're here and you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, that you are trusting that you couldn't walk on the highway of holiness except for the fact that he has redeemed you. If you believe that, you're invited to this table. When the elements come, you can grab the, the cups. There'll be two in each thing. And participate with us. If you're not a believer, let it pass and come see me immediately afterwards so we can talk because I would love to introduce you to the one who does all things well. For what I received from the Lord, I pass on to you that the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he'd given thanks, he broke it. He said, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup. He said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out so that your sins may be forgiven. Drink from this, all of you, in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Brothers and sisters, let's stand together, and we're going to have uh, this song. This is a version done by Rich Mullins that is going to play, and I encourage you, sing and worship as you're grabbing the elements, and let the Lord minister to you that whatever brokenness you've got, your shepherd is faithful. And let's prepare, uh, prepare to take the bread together. Father, in the beginning you made Adam and Eve and you placed them in a garden of delights. The earth produced food abundantly to meet their needs and they had open fellowship with you. But they broke it. Father, they sinned, unleashing chaos into creation and separating them from their maker. And we, their descendants, have followed them in this path of sin, sorrow, and woe. Yet you have still cared for us by giving us sun and rain and making the earth bud and flourish so that it yields seed for the sower and bread for the eater. And for your people you have given the true bread, Jesus our Lord, who cares for and sustains our bodies and who nourishes our spirits so that we may live eternally with you. Lord, we give you thanks for your works of creation and providence, but especially for your work of redemption and restoration through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Brothers and sisters, take and eat. Lord, in your gracious favor, you slayed an animal to cover Adam and Eve, and you continued to provide coverings for sin through your law. But Lord, we are here to confess that Jesus is the true Lamb of God who covers our nakedness, cleansing and removing our sin as far as the east is from the west. For the blood of bulls and goats could never remove our sin, but by his one great sacrifice, his blood has removed our sin and has made us your people forever. So Lord, we lift this cup and we give you thanks for the blood of Christ through which we have received forgiveness and salvation and through which we will one day fully inherit every good promise you have given to us. Brothers and sisters, take and drink. Let's stand together. And again, as I pray, I encourage you, whatever area that has been the challenges for you right now. I encourage you to let the Spirit of the Lord minister to you and let him press upon you the fact your shepherd will guide you until you stand before him. Lord, you are the good shepherd who cares for us each moment of our lives. Though this world 
is broken and full of pain and difficulty, you are our tender shepherd and guide, cheering each winding path we tread, giving us grace for every trial, and feeding us with the living bread. Lord, you are the one who uh, takes the thirst of our soul and slakes it in the wilderness of this world. So Lord, we cry out for the provision of your Holy Spirit. Father, you made all things well. Jesus the Son, you have restored and redeemed all things well. Spirit of the living God, you are the one who works upon us and encourages us and strengthens and keeps us. You do all things well. And so, Lord, we ask that you would strengthen our faith this week, reminding us by your Spirit each day of the great inheritance that awaits us. Because, Lord, whatever goes on in this life, we will spend eternity rejoicing before you, fully realizing all of your great purposes and gifts, glorifying and enjoying you forever. Lord, may this reality strengthen and encourage us so that we might serve you this week. And Lord, we pray, break the chains on our tongues. Lord, set our lips and mouths free that we may proclaim you to everyone around us, that we may tell everyone what Jesus has done for us. Lord, fill our mouths with the sentence, what you need to know is Jesus, for he does all things well. Lord, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to conclude this week with a word of benediction and doxology out of the book of Jude. I encourage you to receive the grace of God and to bring glory to our Father. Mercy, peace, and love be yours in abundance. Through our Lord Jesus Christ, God is redeeming and restoring all things. So to him who is able to keep you from falling and to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy, to the only God our Savior be glory, majesty, power, and authority through Jesus Christ our Lord before all ages, now, and forever more. Amen. Amen. Brothers and sisters, you are blessed. Go forth and be a blessing. Amen. Thank you for listening to the teaching ministry of Bay Ridge Christian Church. For more teachings and resources, please visit www.brcc.church.